0: Before we begin with the text today, we have two kind of pieces of business that we need to do uh, that will get us ready to understand what we're going to look at today. Okay, so the first one is a recap and a kind of like a context of where this story is. And so if you've been following the book of Joshua and you remember the sermons or you remember the lessons or you've been reading it yourself or studying it yourself, and if you haven't been doing that, I would encourage you to do it, Um, and we're about to take two weeks off, the next two weeks. We'll be on a different topic, a kind of a a thank you topic, a Thanksgiving topic, if you will, and then we'll come back to it. Um, We are not done by any means, and obviously we'll do Christmas uh, sermons as we get close to Christmas. Um, That being said, uh, remember the context and look at the context, and I'm going to summarize it in a second. But before we do that, we need a working definition of sin that we can agree on. There's an old-fashioned kind of Awana definition that someone might dredge up out of their head, or there's a Bible definition uh, that, you know, sin is this. What is sin? Go ahead. Disobeying God. Okay? So you say disobeying God. And that, and I agree with that with, with as long as we break down the word disobeying. What does it mean to disobey? Some people would say, I'm not sure exactly what that means. What does disobeying mean?
1: Matthew
0: Okay, so that would be one half of disobeying not doing what you're supposed to do what's another what's the other half? Okay Yeah, so not doing what you're told or not doing what you're supposed to do is one half. What's the other half? What? Doing what you're not supposed to do now, obviously you can't do what you're not supposed to do without not doing what you're supposed to do Although sometimes we do what we were supposed to. We talked about how when the Israelites marched around, remember the context, it's all in the context of the story. When the Israelites marched around, they were given commands to march around once on the first day, once on the second day, and so on. seven times on the seventh day, and so on. We talked about two things when we did that. One of which was they were given the commands for the Ark of the Covenant to lead them around the city. But when they marched around the city, what did they do? Do you remember? Soldiers first right, in front of the Ark of the Covenant to protect it maybe or whatever, because that was traditional military strategy and the little bit that they knew or whatever. But anyway, they put soldiers version in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So they didn't, didn't do it the way that they were supposed to do it, but they did it. They did what God told them to do. They just didn't quite do it the way that they were supposed to. That was an example. And then also, what else did we mention at that time as far as there was once the first day, once the second day, and seven times on the seventh day, which means they missed What? The Sabbath, right? Seven days they marched around the city the first day, second day, third day, and seven times on the seventh day. Somewhere in there was a Sabbath, and God was essentially saying to them, You're going to march either once or seven times, not having the normal Sabbath. Okay? And um, and so sometimes you do what it is that God wants you to do, but you do it in a way that's a little bit different than God wants you to do it. And if you do that, I want to say to you and I want to get ahead of myself, I want to say to you that if you do that in ignorance or you do it for some, what you think is a good reason, but you're still obedient and you're trusting in God, then you're okay. Okay. Cause I'm really doing this for God. I'm doing what I think God wants me to do. I really believe it's what God wants me to do. And I think I'm doing it the way God wants me to do it. I'm wrong about that, but I think it's true. You're still okay because you're in ignorance and I think that's still sin and there still could be ramifications for that. And we're even going to see today that some of the ramifications of that can be pretty severe because it's kind of like a domino effect. You start with small dominoes, and we are, all dominoes are the same size, pretty much, um, unless they make them special. But you can knock over a pretty big domino with a row of smaller dominoes, and it can build up in size to get a pretty big domino knocked over, and all of a sudden you're somewhere where you didn't want to be. Okay? So sin, for our working definition for today, you could do a lot with it, but our working definition today is either... Uh, Disobedience to God, which is either doing what God doesn't want you to do, or uh, doing not doing what God wants you to do, or if I can add, doing what God wants you to do in a way that God does not want you to do it. So you're doing it. So, for example, you're winning people to Jesus by uh, giving them cocaine. For example, that is not that's not Godly. That is not the way that God would want you to do that. And the truth is, you're probably not actually winning them to Jesus then. Um, but you think you are. Okay, so that was one thing. The second thing is, and I'm not going to go through all those lessons that we've learned so far, but I want to remind you the story to this day because this story is, um, it's cold. It's harsh. Um, it is a reality that we don't want to face. And you're going to, and it's pretty, um, well, I would say damning. That is exactly the right word uh, for what we're looking at. So what's the difference between the people who are inside the city of Jericho and the people who are outside the city? Because that's the context of what we're talking about. They have just waltzed into, if you will, the city of Jericho, came up from where they are and conquered the city of Jericho, filled with Canaanites. What is the difference? Do the Canaanites and the Israelites have a shared ancestor? Yeah. Yes. Who is it? Who's their shared ancestor? Most recently. In history. Noah. Somebody said Noah, that's right. So it's Noah. Okay? Noah is their shared ancestor. Canaan was a grandson of Noah, not the first grandson, even. But then w- there was a sin not long after the the they came out of the ark and everything. And Noah pronounced a curse against Canaan. And the curse that he pronounced was that Canaan's descendants would forever be in the vicinity or would be around the Israelites and would tempt and draw them away from God. That's the curse. He didn't call them the Israelites at that point, but he said the people of God. And so the difference between the Canaanites and the Israelites is essentially, primarily the curse. But there is a second difference, which is the recognition of ownership. Those who are outside are marked as owned by God. They are the people of God. The Israelites are the people of God. They just went through a very painful circumcision experience to remind themselves that they belong to God. They are marked. They belong to God. Okay. They are the people of God. And God even says, I have given over the city of Jericho. And then he says, but everything that's inside the city is under the ban. So, it all gets destroyed, burned, down to nothing, ashes, but the gold, and the silver, bronze, and steel goes into the Lord's coffers. But other than that, it's all nobody can take anything. And the people that are inside there are under the ban. They will all be destroyed. And the animals that are inside there are under the ban to be destroyed. And so on. Say that again? Except for Rahab. That's right. So Rahab had switched sides. Even though she's what? Is she an Israelite? No. She's a Canaanite. Okay. And so she traces her lineage back to the wrong guy. She's under the curse, but she bails out from under the curse and sides with the Israelites. And so she'll be spared and, and her and her family and all those in her house and all that they own would all be spared. It's not under the van. So the first thing is to see that the differences Canaanites versus Israelites is primarily the curse. One. The second thing is, one is owned by God. Both are owned by God, but it's a recognition of ownership. The people that are inside, they have been following false gods. They have been uh, sacrificing their children. They have been sacrificing two false gods and false idols for over 400 years. That's a very well-developed evil society in that sense. And so that brings us to the last point, the difference between the people from the outside and the inside, one is holy. And we've got to define holy for a minute. The word holy in the Bible in the Greek, it's agios, and it means different. So it almost sounds silly to say it. The people who are on the outside of the city are different than the people are on the inside of the city because they are different. By definition, they are different. Now, by ownership, they recognize they are owned by God. By lineage, they all come from, inside and outside, come from Noah, but the people inside come down through the line of Canaan, and the people outside do not, okay? And so there's a difference in their lineage, there's a difference in their recognition of ownership, but frankly, they, the people outside are just different. They're holy. They're, trying to, they're God's people trying to live like God's people, if you will, Okay? And so that is the primary three differences. God's chosen people outside the city, we'll see, are there to overcome the enemies of God. The people inside the city, because they are not holy, because they are not recognizing the ownership of God, and because they come down from the line of Canaan, they are God's enemies. They have had over 400 years to repent of their sin and to not live like this, and yet they have continued to do so. Do you know that recently archaeologists have turned over the burnt skeletons of infant babies from Molech worship? Within the last 20 years, still found places of Molech worship where they burned firstborn babies alive in the fire. This is an evil and a wicked and, let's say, sinful people who do not recognize that they belong to God, descended from the line of Canaan, which means under the curse of Noah. <coughs> And sadly, I'm going to say to you that the people inside the city are not any different from the rest of the Canaanites or even the rest of the world, but the people around the city are different from the Canaanites and also from the, de- from the rest of the world. They are God's chosen people to overcome God's enemies. But what if God's chosen people became the enemies of God? What if there was a betrayal where the one or the ones who God has now said, you belong to me? Yeah, we realize that, God, we belong to you. And then say, well, we're going to do what you tell us to do, God. We are, as Christians, for example, we are descendants from Abraham, not necessarily by blood, but by faith. We are all descendants of Noah and his offspring, right? And previously Adam and his offspring. But now, not, so our lineage is the same, but we're supposed to be different. We recognize God's people. We're supposed to be different as God's people. Right? But what if there was a betrayal? What if one of God's people who is owned by God, who comes from the right line, who supposedly recognizes that, they, that they're owned by God, what if that person said, I'm not going to do what it is that God wants me to do? Or I'm going to do exactly what it is that God told me not to do? Or if they continued in the process of doing what the, supposedly what God told them to do, but not in the way that God told them to do it? What if there was that kind of a betrayal? Well, that's the story that we're going to read today. That's the context. If you took somebody who is owned by God and supposedly recognizes it. Somebody who is owned by God and supposedly recognizes it and comes from the right line and is chosen by God, marked by God, and betrays God. That's exactly what we're going to look at. So grab your Bibles, if you would. Take a a breath. Uh, Give me an amen or a something as we turn to Joshua chapter 7. Amen. Amen. All right. So this, as I said, these are tough verses. Uh, they they, They will... You know, if you're sensitive, they might make your stomach a little upset. We're going to read Joshua 7, the entire chapter. I'm going to explain some things as we go through, but not all of it in the interest of time. So if you, don't, if you run into words, places, or things that you don't know, and I don't, I don't tell you what they are as I'm talking, then just underline in your Bible, make a little note in your book or in your paper or in your mind, if you, if you can do that, if you're that strong mentally, and look them up later. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. So we got one guy, his name is Achan. His name, by the way, means trouble or troubler. It comes from the word trouble, and, it, and because it's a person, you'd say he's a troubler or he's a trouble. So Achan, the word means trouble or troubler, okay? And he took some of the things under the ban. At this point, it doesn't say exactly what he took, but he did, he betrayed God. Now, mind you, he was just circumcised a week ago. He just saw the walls of Jericho fall. He is owned by God. He is marked by God. He's recognized as that. He says he recognizes God is in charge. And it says that he took some of the things of the man, and that the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Notice it does not say the anger of the Lord burned against Achan. You follow? Rather, it says, The sons of the Lord burned, or the, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. So the whole of their camp is now in trouble because of the sin of this one man. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho. And by the way, I looked this up. It's pronounced IE, which is weird, but that's how it's pronounced. Jericho to IE. I've always said it AI, but it, which is what it says, but it's IE, which is near Beth Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out IE. They returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand men need to go up to IE. Do not make all the people toil up there. For they are few, meaning the people of Ai. So about three thousand men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. So right away in verse three we see that there. This is a very optimistic time for the people of Israel. Okay. Later we're going to see when it goes right and they wipe them out. Wipe out Ai. That they wipe out twelve thousand people, but the the spies or the scouts say just send three thousand. So. The battle they just came off of, and historians say, that one Israelite was worth uh, usually 20 men. So with God on their side, they were worth over 20 men. So that would be 3,000 would be 60,000 people that they could handle, right? Right? So that's why they feel so optimistic, because God is on their side. God knocked the walls of Jericho down. God owns us. We're for God. We're different. Nobody can stand up to us. So we don't need to go up as a whole army. Just about 3,000 of us go up. But then look at what happens. They run. It says they fled from the men of Ai. Now, look at the summary of the battle. It says the, the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shabarim, which we don't know that exact geographical location, but it's a mark along the way to Ie from Jericho, and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And so the notice that, first of all, we saw because of Achan, they were in trouble. God is angry with or has turned against the sons of Israel because of what Achan did, right? Then we see they run. The 3,000 men run. Now, we have some veterans in the room. When 3,000 men in the army go up against 7, 8,000 men or whatever, even though they're going to win, you expect to take a few losses. And nobody wants to take any losses, right? Nobody wants to die in combat. But the bottom line is if you're 3,000 men and you're going into combat with sword and shield versus 3,000 men, even, which is probably more than that from what we're going to see, you expect to take some losses. They fled before the enemy and they were cut down as they ran, and how many people died? 36. When did they run? Based on that, when did they run? They ran before the battle was joined, right? They did Say it again. Almost immediately. almost immediately. They ran almost immediately. Now, there were no signs that came up, no rockets that were launched, no landmines in the field, but they came up against the men of Ai and they said, whoa, wait a minute, even though we're 3,000 strong, here is a larger army than us, and they ran almost immediately. Now, the report was that the military was few, and they got there and said, well, military is not few enough for me, and They ran. And men were cut down as they ran. And later when we see Joshua, Joshua says, what am I going to do if the Israelites run away at the face of the enemy? Okay. And so you see that as God's anger is burning against the Israelites, and the direct outcome of that is, one, their optimism is misplaced. Two, the report may not be accurate. Three, the 3,000 men ran almost immediately, probably before the battle was even joined, And 36 of them were cut down as they ran away in fear. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men, pursued them from the gate as far as Shabarim. They got to the gate of the city. They got around the city, but they didn't actually join the fight. And then lastly, you see the people are terrified. The hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes, which just means he was really upset. And he, They literally would do that. They would rent their robes to show their anger. And they fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God! Why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hands of, and remember that's the Emirates, to destroy us, if only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. And so Joshua was saying, no, we should have just stayed over there. It would have been fine. It would have been a little cramped maybe, but it would have been fine because now we're in trouble. Oh Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? It doesn't, he doesn't say because you've dismissed us, God, or you're angry with us, or, or because you're not helping us now, but we ran away. What are we going to say now? We've, we've, dis, we've uh, disparaged the name of God. We've made God look bad. Is God for us? Listen to what he, says the, he envisions the results as. He says, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? In other words, God, what are you going to do about the fact that we're cowards? And because we're cowards, the people of Canaan are going to surround us and destroy us as an army. It's interesting because Joshua looks at the actions of those who were there that day at IE and he says their, their actions are basically sin, right? They ran. But notice that that was the culmination. It didn't start there. They didn't start by running. There was a bad report and a fear that developed and a major opposition. And it culminated in they ran away and 36 of them died, cut down from behind as they fled. And he says, whatever are we going to do if if we're going to run away like cowards... And he says to God, what will you do for your great name? If we're going to run away like cowards and they're going to surround us and cut us all down, then who will be God's people? Who will do what it is that God is supposed to do? Who will recognize the ownership of God? Who will be different? God, what are you going to do for your great name? Listen to what God says. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. And I said it that way on purpose. I think that must have been his tone. Rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? which is an interesting question, isn't it? He says, Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Now, Israel's sin may be that they ran away, but notice that God's anger burned against the sons of Israel when God knew that Achan had stolen of the ban. But he says that Israel has sinned. And he says, they've even taken some of the things under the ban. They have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. And so it's like God is saying, this the sins that have been a result since then are, arise out of the fact that things were taken out of the ban. It was a secret sin. Nobody knows that things were taken out of the ban. But now it plays itself out as God's people are being destroyed in, in uh, the military conflict and they're terrified and Joshua predicts that the whole nation is going to be destroyed all because of Achan's sin. That's where it began, a secret sin. He says in verse 12, Therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. In other words, the people of God cannot stand up before their enemies when the secret sin that is in their midst results in public cowardice. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. In other words, unless you make right what you did that was wrong, unless you get rid of the sin, I will not be with you. Because I am not with you, you will be terrified. You will run before your enemies and be destroyed. The secret sin that resulted in the cowardice of the people and that pushed God away must be dealt with. Rise up! Consecrate. In other words, make holy, make different again the people and say, consecrate yourself for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, there are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then, you shall come near by your tribes." And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire. He and all that belongs to him because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. So they were going to hunt down. God was going to miraculously, one by one, first by tribe, and then by family, and everybody was going to come. And by the way, what do you think the mentality is as these people are coming? They're going, I know I didn't take anything under the ban, but I wonder if one of my cousins did. I wonder if my brother did. I wonder if my uncle did. Right? They're, they're, they're questioning each other, looking at, will our family suffer because of the sin of someone in our family? Right. That's what's going to happen. He says that they will come tribe by tribe, family by family, down to the man by man until it's exposed. And the one who is taken with the things under the band shall be burned with fire. The one, the person who is taken with the things under the band shall be burned with fire. He and all that belongs to him because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. It's interesting, isn't it? It's exactly the opposite of what happened to Rahab. We had a sermon a couple months back about how to betray your king and your family and your people. And she did that, but she did it in the right direction. She went over to God's side and her and all of her family and all of their stuff was spared. And now Achan and all of his family and all of his stuff will be destroyed. It's the exact opposite of what happened to Rahab. It's like Rahab was traded, if you will, for Achan. So Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes. The tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the family of Judah near and he took the family of the Zerahites and he brought the family of the Zerahites near man by man. And Zabdi was taken. It's getting close, isn't it? He brought his household near man by man and Achan son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord the God of Israel, and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Now notice, at this moment in time, Achan has to make a choice. It's already been found out. The lot has already fallen to him. He's the one who took the stuff in the band. But he has to make a choice and come out and confess and admit what he's done. He has to bring the secret sin out of his own mouth out into the open so everyone can know that he did what he said what God said he did. It's interesting that he must confess. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I, said, what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle, which is like a cloak or a robe, from Shinar, which is Babylon, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them, and I took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel. And they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? Notice that play on the, the name of Achan. Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. Again, the play on his name. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day, and the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Acor, or the Valley of Troubles, to this day. So ends the Troubles of Israel. Acor, the wife of Acor. The children of Acor, the family of Acor, everyone that was there with him, all of his animals, his tent, what he stole and everything he ever had, stoned and burned. In theory, the wealth was put where it belonged into the coffers of God. I told you last week in the sermon. I preached the point that says you cannot take what belongs to God. But this is worse than that. This is worse than Achan taking what belongs to God, which was true. You can't do that. Uh, No one can do that. And it is the sin of the Canaanites, if you will, that they took what belonged to God. They gave the glory of God to their false idols and killed their children and a variety of other things. You can't do that. But it's interesting because this is a story from another day. This is not our context, right? Even though we are chosen as a people of God, we are marked by God with his Holy Spirit. We are different from the world. Even though all of those things are true, understand that this is a different context. God does not stone people. God does not have us stone people for their sin. God does not have us destroy objects because they are tainted by the sin of others. This is a different day. But some of the truths remain. Here's the first one. And it's a two-parter, but I'll give you the first part. Because God hates sin. Because God hates sin. Because God hates sin. What was sin again? It was that disobedience, right? It's doing what God doesn't want you to do, not doing what God does want you to do, or doing what God wants you to do, but doing it in a way that is not godly. Not what God wanted, right? Because God hates sin, this whole episode in the Valley of Achor takes place, and the valley gets its name, and the stones are raised over top of the place in which their burnt bodies remained. Until the book of the writing until the writing of the book of Joshua, those stones had at least remained. Because God hates sin, the city of Jericho would fall, the walls would go down, and the society that would sacrifice their children in the fire and all the many other things that they had done over the last 400 years would be punished. Because God hates sin, the Canaanites essentially began and were cursed because of the sin that was committed against Noah. Noah cursed Canaan, and so this begins. Proverbs 16 through 23 says this. If If you want to flip there, you can. 16 through 23. Chapter 6 it's Proverbs 6:16 six, through 23. There are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. You know what an abomination means, by the way? Something that should be destroyed. Wiped out. It's an abomination, something detestable, disgusting. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, one who spreads strife among brothers. He goes on to say, My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck, When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over. And when you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. God hates sin. And because God hates sin, he took it away and killed it. Now, I'm not talking about Achan talking about Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Because God hates sin, He took it away and killed it. That's what happened to Jesus. Now the truth is that trouble dies there. When God kills sin, trouble dies there. This is the lesson, the message of the story of Achan. God hates sin. And because God hates sin, he took it away and killed it. Achan was representative of that inside the people of Israel, inside God's people. His secret sin compounded and led to the cowardice at Ai, the cowardice that caused 36 men to be stabbed in the back or hacked down as they ran. That caused God to withdraw His presence from His people. His secret sin cascaded down, not only on His family, but on the people of God. And cowardice and a lack of the presence of God with His people was the result. God hates sin, and so He took it away and He killed it. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And trouble dies there. But here's the amazing thing. Men have resurrection power when it comes to sin. Just the same as we have creation power in God and we have destruction power in God, we also have resurrection power in God. And we keep bringing it back. God took sin away and killed it, and we keep bringing it back. But the times are changing. Paul says this in Acts chapter 17, verses 29 through 31. He says, Talking, he's talking to the Areopagus, learned men who are considering the teachings of Jesus. And he says, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. In other words, God is not like that. God is something so far above art or statues or gold or money or things or things that taste good or things that feel good. God is so far above all of that Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. You hear the story of Achan. For over 400 years, God kept the Israelites in Egypt while the Canaanites continued in their sin. Because their sin, he said, had not yet come to full measure. But now it had come to full measure. And Achan and all of the other Israelites are there to bring the judgment of God. But amongst the people of God then comes a man who is a betrayer of God. A troubler of God. A troubler of God's people. And he takes for himself what belongs to God. And his secret sin that he thinks is going to be okay because nobody's going to know about it. He's going to spend a little bit of silver here and there. Right. Wait until they've taken a few more cities down the road and eventually God will let them have some treasures. And then as God lets them have some treasures, then he'll be able to bring out that fancy robe that he stole. Somehow he's going to cover it up and it's going to remain secret for all time. He certainly wasn't thinking, if I take this, I'm going to go home and they're going to kill me and all my family. He would already been told if he didn't follow the commands of Joshua that he would be destroyed. He would be destroyed. This secret sin amongst God's people God was not going to overlook. As he overlooked the sins of the Israel, of the Canaanites for over 400 years, God was not going to overlook because now the times had changed. You see? Now God's people were marked by God. Now God's people were in, were, God was with them. God was the one giving them the victory. God was the one conquering the enemies of God right alongside of God's people. God was right there fighting with them. Now we have the context that is our context in view. Paul says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. In other words, turn from all sin. Turn to God and follow only God. And this, he says in verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. Talking about Jesus. Having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God was showing by the resurrection of Jesus that there would come a day that all men would be judged by the righteousness of Jesus. And because of that day, now everybody has to repent. You have to turn from your sin. God hates sin. He hated it so much, He took it away and killed it. And He expects people now to live without that sin. The best they know how. And then each day growing and knowing better. Things had changed when Paul was speaking. Acor died in part because of his context, because he was part of a holy people, part of a people claimed for God, part of a people marked by God, a different kind of people. And he died in part because of God's holy nature. For a people to be with God and supported by God, they need to be different. Romans chapter 6, verse 2 through 4 says this Paul says, talking about should we live in sin now because we're forgiven of all of our sin. He says, May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. He would say, How can we live in sin? And then on in verse 11, he says, and this is a relatively long passage, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as though alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, For you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. If you are God's Son, if you are God's daughter, then come out and live in righteousness. Do what's right. Do what God has commanded you to do. And don't do what God has said don't do. Live right. And if not, understand, then you are submitting yourself to a master, which is sin, and to submit yourself to that master has the results of death. Though you claim life, you will die because of the sin. Not because of The wages of sin is death, which is coming in this same passage. But because you chose the master whose result is death, just like Achan did amongst a people owned by God, marked by God, righteousness, holiness, descendants of God's people. And yet he chose to take the things under the ban. Verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, You have become obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, in other words, just as you did the things that were unclean, the things that were against God, Resulting in further lawlessness, it cascades out of control. So now present your members, your body parts, all your choices, all the things that you are as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification, which means becoming holy or different. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you didn't have to do what was right. You could do what was wrong because you were a slave of sin and it was your master. It had expectations and you were meeting them. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? In other words, what were you really getting out of doing what was wrong? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. You become different, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. He says, And the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are dead indeed to sin, but alive in Jesus. And then Paul writes in First Corinthians chapter five, beginning in verse eleven. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And so what he's saying there was, there was a man in the church who was professing to be a Christian, who said he loved the Lord, but actually he was living in sin and everybody knew it. And he says, kick him out. Don't let him be part of the church. Now, Matthew 18, Jesus says, continue to love him like you would a lost person. You still respect him, right? But you don't, you don't do the things of God with somebody who's not of God. The church is supposed to be righteous. The church is supposed to be holy. The church is not supposed to do the things that God says don't do. The church is not supposed to be out of control. It's supposed to be under the control of God. And so he said, escort this man from your midst. Because he says he is one of us and has sin, we escort him out. Now, if he was out in the world and he has sin, we don't judge that. We don't, you know, what he's living for his master. Why do we have a problem with him living for his master? You shouldn't have a problem with that. But of course, you do deliver the gospel and invite them to come over and have a different master. You invite those who are under sin to become like Rahab under God. But those who are under God, who are actually in sin. They're not like Rahab. They're like Achan. And we don't take them out and stone them, but we have to recognize that this sin has a spreading effect. It impacts everybody around them and all the stuff and all the things that they do. John wrote it this way, 1 John 3. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness, in other words, the one who does right by God, who does the right thing, is righteous. Just as he is righteous. Just as Jesus is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So if if he came to destroy the works of the devil, why would people who are sons and daughters of God do the works of the devil? No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. Because God's seed abides in him, he does not practice sin, is what he's saying. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. But by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So if you don't do the right things, you are not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. If you don't love your brother, the one who professes to be a Christian, you're not of God. That's what John wrote. It's an extreme teaching. It's tough to swallow. You say, well, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're still trying to figure out what you're supposed to do, be honest, be loving, be kind, be merciful, be gracious. Give and serve care about everybody, first and foremost, the believers, and then after that, everybody who will love your neighbor as yourself. If you're still trying to figure out the basics of what you're supposed to do, then why aren't you wondering to whom you belong? The basics of what we are supposed to do is enough to fill an entire life. You cannot become comfortable with your sin. There's a, a passage of Scripture that people use so often, right? It's, it's in Matthew chapter 7. I didn't write this down in my notes, so I'm going to go there and read it. We're almost at the conclusion. Matthew chapter 7. In there. Beginning in verse 3. Jesus says, I'll go back to verse 1, because people love it. They use it. Do not judge lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. In other words, when you apply your standard of measure, whatever it is, to other people and judge them, say they're condemned, they must be going to hell, whatever you say, they're lost. That same standard that you're using on them because you see sin in their life could be applied to you. And he says, and why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? In other words, why do you consider the sin that he has or the problems that he has, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Oh, how quick we are to recognize other people's sin, but to allow us to allow ourselves to have our own sin and continue. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. Listen to this. He says, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So these verses in this context are constantly used to say we shouldn't tell anybody else about their sin. We shouldn't say you have sin. We shouldn't say that is a sin because we're not supposed to judge, right? It's not all what it's talking about. In fact, it literally says at the end that after we get done dealing with our own sin that we have discovered that's blocking our view, that's tainting our vision, after we have done dealing with that, we will be equipped to help other people get the sin out of their lives. The purpose of the church is we're supposed to be getting holier and holier. We're supposed to be doing better and better. I understand There are things that we do that are wrong. we're supposed to be continually repentant and moving away from the things that we're doing that are not right. It's the whole point. We are a holy people. To be the best that we can every day and the next day for the best that we can to be better than it was yesterday. Repent of our sin is something we are called to. And then before we say we're not supposed to try to take the sin out of our life because we're a people under grace, understand he just said, take it out. Jesus said, take it out. So yes, you're supposed to look at your life and look at your sin and say, I'm doing something that's wrong. You're supposed to turn from that and do right. You're supposed to do that. But don't get dwelling on the sin or focusing on the sin or spend all your time trying to fight the sin. Why? Because God so hated sin that he did what? He took it out and killed it. So if you get so focused on the sin that's in your life and you're working on that and that's my direction and that's my goal, realize that you're doing everything to deal with something that's actually dead. Because God killed it. So you have to stop resurrecting it. Stop doing the things that you're not supposed to do as you're now free to do what you're supposed to do. First John wrote in, uh, John wrote in First John this, in the last verses before the conclusion. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. The God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So in other words, we're not supposed to ever get to the point where there's no sin whatsoever. At the same time, we're supposed to be moving to a place where there's less and less sin. And whenever a sin comes up, an opportunity, we're supposed to choose something different. Choose something godly. Do what's right. Because that's what's in the light. Be honest about who we are, and at the same time, be improving who we are. He says, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we love the part where it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous and righteous to forgive us our sins. And we love to stop right there. If we confess what we've done wrong, if we, reckon, we admit to God that we have this weakness or whatever, God will forgive us. And he'll cleanse us. And that's true. But it doesn't stop there. He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Meaning, he will move us to do what's right. He will push away the things that are bad. He has killed those things. They are dead things. Like Weekend at Bernie's, we are dragging around with us a dead body trying to get it to do what we want it to do. And it's not going to because it is by its very nature the opposite of God. And it is it leads to death. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. So don't go to God and say, okay God, I'm good now. I have no sin. Because that would be a lie. Instead, examine yourself, consider yourself Where you are, look at what you're not doing that you're supposed to be. Look at what you're doing that you're not supposed to be doing. Look at what you're doing, but doing it wrong. And go to God and say, God, I get that. Now teach me how to do it right. Show me how to put this away. How do I put it down once and for all? What steps do I take to replace these things that are wrong in my life? And God will do exactly that, or so it's promised we come to the conclusion if you will and it is this there is no extreme too far to go to cut out sin and we're not we're not into self-mutilization right even though jesus said if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off it's better for you to come into the kingdom of god with just one hand than it is to fail to come into the kingdom of God, right? You want to go to heaven. There are no steps too extreme to take to cut sin out of our life. That's the conclusion. That's what God was teaching us through the message of Achan as he cleansed his people and asked the very same people that to a man sliced the foreskins of their penises less than a week ago, asked them to consecrate themselves, or just over a week ago, asked them to consecrate themselves and said, Be holy. You know what God is asking you to do, what God is asking me to do? He's asking us to be what we are. Be what human beings were originally created to be, to be in fellowship with him, to do right, to do what we know to do, to follow the commands of the Lord. To be the kind of person that we're supposed to be. That's what he's asking. And he's saying there are no extremes too far to go to cut out sin. In Revelation chapter 1 verses 4 through 7, uh, it says this, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are from his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood and he made us to be a kingdom, priests, to to His God and Father, to Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. Joshua, whose name means God saves. Brought through the Greek into the New Testament language would be Jesus. He's not Jesus. We understand that. He was a man in his day. Moses gave him a name that could be translated as Jesus. Came to Achan, the troubler, and he took him out in the field and he stoned him and his family and his donkeys and his sheep Even burnt his tent and raised a pile of stones over him. And on the day that Jesus comes again, there are going to be people who claim the name of Jesus and people who don't, who are going to be troubled because they realize they have in their life a secret sin like Achan, and that it has caused them to behave throughout the days of their lives. As a coward. That they have been taken from behind. Time and time again in their spiritual walk. They have allowed themselves to fall and to fail. Rather than to stand up and be strong and be right. They say, it's too extreme. It's too hard. I'm too weak. I can't do it. I keep slipping back into. I'm tempted. They shouldn't tempt me. He shouldn't tempt me. We shouldn't. Whatever your excuses are. There are no extremes too extreme to cut sin out of your life. And kid yourself not if you have it, if you are doing it, if you know what it is, a thing that you're doing that you're not supposed to be doing, or if you're not doing a thing that you are supposed to be doing, or if you're doing a thing that you're supposed to do, but you know you're doing it in a way that God would not allow, then when Jesus comes again, you will have in your heart the same emotions. You will feel in your mind the same thoughts racing and you will experience the same torment that Achan took and experienced as they were walking him and his family and all of his worldly belongings out to Acor. I didn't say it. John wrote it. He wrote it in a statement that was being delivered by or from The seven spirits who are before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. In that statement, he said, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. But they won't be mourning because Jesus died. They won't be mourning because the demons and evil spirits are going to hell forever. They won't be mourning because the people are once and for all be sordid. They will be mourning because they had the opportunity. They knew they could be right by God. They knew they could receive his forgiveness and his righteousness and his cleansing. They knew that it had been paid for by Jesus. And like Achan, who was amongst the people of God, a holy people claimed and marked, they thought, well, I'll get away with it. And now Jesus comes and they realize they're not going to get away with it. And then the actual verses that Jesus spoke, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the heart, one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus said these things. Now, he wasn't literally talking about cast, cutting off your arm. He was saying, and you could summarize that in this statement, there are no extremes too serious to go to to cut out sin. Why? Because God hated sin so much that he took it out and he killed it. He made Jesus to be sin and he killed him. And then Jesus rose again. To testify once and for all to the fact that Jesus is coming again and he's going to righteously judge men for their sins. You can't do that. I can't do that. Well, we, I can't judge your sin. Right? Now, if you have an overt public sin, you should not be a church member. You should be removed from church membership because that's what it says. Then you can come here and you can worship God and you can learn from God and you can eventually come to the point at which you want to live right by God. And I hope that you will do that. But if you have a secret sin, I can't judge that. If you have cowardice that arises out of that secret sin, I can't judge that. But you are commanded to judge it. You are commanded to deal with it. If you have a dead thing in your life that you've consumed and allowed to continue to be a part of you, you are required by God to cut that out. To get rid of it. There is no extreme too far to go to cut out sin. We are We are His people. And our context is just as grave as acorns. No one is going to take anyone outside and stone them. No one should be slaughtering anyone on Facebook. Those things are sin too. No one should be back-talking or bad-talking somebody because they did something they don't like. Those things are sin too. Slander, gossip, right? What are the six things that God hates, even seven? One of them is a person who causes strife amongst the brethren. It was on the list. A mouth that's out of control speaks lies. It was on the list. But Acor's context and our context, Achan's context and our context are just the same. We belong to God's people. What are the differences between those who are in the kingdom and those who are out? We all come from Noah. We all come from Adam. But some of us are under a curse and some of us have been set free. Some of us are marked as the people of God and some of us are not. Some of us are holy and righteous and some of us are not. That's a difference. That's a difference we need to live. And according to this precedent of these verses, if we do not, we instead of responding with courage and fearlessness to face the problems of our lives, we respond like a coward. Instead of standing up and doing what's right, we'll be sitting down and being silent in a day when Our country and our world is going to hell in a handbasket. Our task is just as, even more important than the taking of Jericho, and therefore we must know and follow the commands of the Lord. Read your Bible, pray, go to Bible study, go to worship. In Proverbs it said that these commands that we take that come from our Father, they will become the light of our life. They will show us what we are to do and what we are to be. Are you afraid to have a little more light, to know a little better what you're supposed to do? What if the light finds its way to shine on your secret sin and it becomes a public sin and people find out? Truth is, if you're not going to deal with your secret sin, then that's the only hope you have is that somebody in this lifetime will find out about your secret sin and call you to account for it. But if you have a secret sin, you are required by the Scripture, by God and by His command to root that out, to figure out what it is that you're doing that you're not supposed to be doing, to figure out what it is that you're not doing that you're supposed to be doing, or what it is that you're not doing correctly. And to allow God to cleanse you of unrighteousness. Will He forgive you? Absolutely. You know why? Because the thing that you're enslaving yourself to is dead. It is dead. It is dead. God killed it. And now you have the chance to be free and totally forgiven of everything you ever did. You ever wonder why you talk to somebody about being forgiven and they go, oh, I don't know. That's not such a big thing. I don't, I don't really feel like I've ever done anything wrong. It's because they're deceived. Are you deceived today? God loves you and he hated your sin. He hated my sin so much that he took it out and killed it. He it out and be rid of it. Make the right decision. Jesus could come today or tomorrow or in a few weeks. And if he does, don't be amongst the mourners. Oh no! A few years back, there was a meme I watched on uh, social media. I'm pretty sure it was on Facebook about a kid who uh, a teenager or a young adult, 18 to 25, somewhere in that range, um, who was in church, and they were worshiping, and then all of a sudden there was like a flash, and there was a half dozen people still in the church, and he was one of them, and everybody else was gone. And he fell on his knees and he began to weep and scream mightily with all of his, all of his strength because he realized that Jesus, I have to remind you, this is probably not the way it's going to go, but he realized that Jesus had just taken the church home and he had missed it. The stories, left behind stories, which are not biblical, they don't follow the teachings of the Bible as far as the order of events go or anything like that, but the bottom line it was all about that. It was about the people who were left behind when Jesus comes again. Now, probably it's not going to be a flash in an instant and people are going to disappear and other people are going to stay on the earth. That's probably not what's going to happen. You say, well, I don't know what is going to happen for sure. Here's what I know for sure. Jesus is going to come again. Everybody's going to know about it. And there are going to be people who are deathly afraid, terrified, and so sad, mourning, crying, weeping, until probably with tears and sweating blood, they face Jesus and God for judgment because they have submitted themselves to sin rather than to righteousness root out the sin that's in your life and get rid of it. I'm not saying cut off your hand or put out your eye. That's ridiculous. You understand what Jesus was saying. He was using figurative language to me, there is no extreme too serious. If you're struggling with Giving, Give more than you've ever given until it's gone. Until that struggle is no more. If you're struggling with serving, then serve more than you've ever served until that struggle is gone. If you're struggling with loving your neighbor, then go out of your way. I had somebody accost me this week and say, why did you do that? And what I had done was like a tiny little thing. It was nothing that was even significant in my mind at all. And they said, why did you do that? And they were getting belligerent about it. And I said, and this is what I said, very calm. I said, I will gladly get down on one knee and thank your forgiveness. And they wouldn't let me. Because immediately they realized that the thing that they were raising a fit about was really not that big of a thing. But if you have a problem saying I'm sorry, start doing it on your knees. Because saying I'm sorry when you're wrong is the right thing to do. If you have a problem with forgiving somebody who has harmed you, then you go and you stand there and you look at them, you ask them, tell me some of the troubles of your life. You look at them and say, what are you going through today? Listen to the difficulties that they face. And as your heart is breaking, find the strength to beg their forgiveness. Do you know what it is that God is calling you to do? Some ministry or some service or some task or be a missionary or go out and preach or go out and teach or win people to Jesus or whatever you know what it is that God's not calling you to do? Or that God's calling you to do and you're not doing it? then you go out and do that thing. And listen to me, hear me now, don't eat, don't sleep, don't do your job, don't get paid, don't pay anybody else, don't shop, don't buy, don't go on the internet, don't check social media, don't make a phone call, don't receive a phone call, until you've done that thing to the point that you know that you will not stop doing it. Am I being clear? If you're supposed to knock on doors in the community and tell people about Jesus, then you go out and knock on doors in the community and you tell people about Jesus until you faint or know that if you take a break, you will come back and do it again. That's the rhythms of life that we're talking about. The rhythm is this. I have this problem. I have to do this. This is what God wants me to do, and I don't want to do it. You know what? When you have a to-do list of seven things, and one of the things you really don't want to do, and the other six things you're looking forward to do, you know what most people do? They do the six things and never get around to doing the one thing that they really know they have to do. You know what you should do? Do the one thing that you really know you have to do that you don't want to do first. Give it your full attention and your all. And that's the way it is in God too. If you know you're supposed to be doing something and you're not doing it, you go and do that thing until you know that if you stop doing it for a second, you'll start doing it again as soon as you can. And if you don't do that, then it's not dead. But it is dead. You kill it. And it will be easy. Because it's already dead. It. Figure out what it is you're supposed to be doing and start doing that. And if you're having a problem doing it, then don't stop doing it until you know you'll pick it up again and do it regularly for the rest of your life. People are supposed to work out. Some say, oh, i got to start working out. i got to start working out two, three days a week. I struggle with that myself. I believe now it's something God wants me to do. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do it to the exclusion of other things that I would like to do, that I want to do. You cut those things out to make room for what you know you have to do. And once you make it a habit, once it becomes absolutely certainly something you're going to do again, then you can stop doing it briefly to do other things. That's what it means when it says rhythm. Get loud about what you're supposed to be doing. Cut out what you're not supposed to be doing. When you're doing something, but you're doing it wrong, do it right. Jesus, God hates sin. He hates it so much he took it out and killed it. But men in their resurrection power keep bringing it back to which Jesus would say there is no extreme too far to go to cut sin out of your life. Let's pray